and welcome to another episode of the 9050 podcast with me, Roland Tanner. I am Joel McLeod. January is Alzheimer's Awareness Month in Canada. Alzheimer's disease is the most common form of a range of diseases collectively known as dementia. And dementia as a whole affects over half a million Canadians today. By the end of the decade, that number will have increased to 912,000. Meanwhile, the annual cost of dementia to the Canadian economy and healthcare system is $10.5 billion. And that doesn't even include the countless hours given by informal caregivers, husbands, wives, children, friends and others to care for their loved ones living with dementia. Alzheimer's and dementia are conditions that my whole family has lived with on three separate occasions since the 1980s as my grandmother, father and mother all lived with either Alzheimer's disease or another form of dementia in their later years. But I recently realised that I hadn't actually updated my knowledge of the disease probably since the 1980s. So since it was Alzheimer's Awareness Month this month, it seemed like an ideal opportunity to update my knowledge and also to share some good advice with our listeners so that we can all do a better job of living with and being prepared for Alzheimer's disease and dementia because as we'll hear today there are in fact many practical things we can all do to reduce our chances of being affected by Alzheimer's disease regardless of our family histories. Joining us to discuss these subjects in detail we have three guests with intimate knowledge of living with Alzheimer's and dementia but from very different perspectives. Mary Burnett is Chief Executive Officer of the Alzheimer's Society of Brant, Haldeman, Norfolk, Hamilton, Halton, and has over 30 years of experience in healthcare, education and social services. Her passion for providing quality services to individuals affected by dementia in the community has been a defining feature of the last 15 years of her work. The Alzheimer's Society of Brant, Haldeman, Norfolk, Hamilton, Halton is the local community agency dedicated to supporting families living with dementia. It is part of a network of societies operating across Ontario and offers a variety of services including dementia education, counselling and support and health and wellness activities. Phyllis Fair was given a working diagnosis of early onset Alzheimer's when she was just 53 years old. Phyllis worked first as an ICU nurse and then uh, as a dementia human rights activist, strategist, policy creator, changer, researcher, teacher, mentor and more. Since her diagnosis, Phyllis commits much of her time doing anti-stigma work related to dementia and promotes the rights and abilities of people living with dementia locally, nationally and internationally. She contributes to multiple advocacy groups including Dementia Advocacy Canada, Dementia Alliance International and the Empowering Dementia Friendly Communities Hamilton Haldeman Project. Jill Davis is known to many in Burlington as the long-standing editor of the Burlington Post. Last year she joined us for one of our early episodes to discuss her experience living uh, with a family member in long-term care during the height of COVID-19's first wave and the challenges it was presenting her in visiting her mother, who was then living with advanced dementia. Sadly, since that episode, Jill's mother has passed away. But Jill very kindly offered to join us once again to discuss her experience as a family member caring for somebody living with dementia. Well, welcome to the podcast, Phyllis, Mary and Jill. 
thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. For this special episode uh, for Alzheimer's Awareness Month, which is January. And I thought I'd start off speaking to you, Phyllis. You, you have Alzheimer's yourself, but uh, you also work extensively in raising awareness of Alzheimer's issues. Perhaps you tell us a little bit about what you do, your kind of history with Alzheimer's and, and what it is you do now in terms of raising awareness um, from the perspective of, of someone who has Alzheimer's. Okay, so I first want to start off my history with Alzheimer's started when I was about 13 years old. My grandmother had Alzheimer's and I helped care for her. And then my own mother developed Alzheimer's and I cared for her until she passed. And then shortly after that, I started seeing symptoms. I was 48 years old when I started seeing symptoms. Um, It took me a while to get diagnosed. But when I got diagnosed, I thought, I don't want to live the way my mother and grandmother lived. I need things to change for people living with dementia because, you know, we're, it's such, the disease is so devastating to a whole family, but it's not, it doesn't have to be. And that's what I try and change is the perception that people can still live well with dementia until they reach the later stages. So I made it my goal right in the very beginning to start to change that narrative that I don't, I'm not a sufferer of dementia. I'm a person living well with dementia. And some of the, a few of the things I did, I think relate to my job. I was a, an RN in an intensive care unit. So I have medical background. So it was highly important that we get this narrative changed. We even change the narrative with the physicians because, you know, when you get that diagnosis, you flounder. And if you don't get hooked up with the Alzheimer's Society, save my life, um, it's not great. So I started, you know, small. I started with the Alzheimer's Society and I drove Mary Burnett nuts because it was like, <laughs> what can I do? send me places. I need to speak. I need to speak. And it was far enough back that we were starting to look at an Ontario dementia strategy. So I worked with the Ontario government on our Ontario dementia strategy. And I thought that was big time. And then we had a chance, Canada was reporting on its charter of rights of people with disabilities over at the um, United Nations. So I, along with a member from Alzheimer's Canada, went to Geneva and we we did what is called a shadow report. So out of that, the report came back to Canada. Canada decided to do um, a study on it through the Senate of Canada. And the Senate invited everybody to speak, all the researchers, the doctors, like everybody, so that they could get all the information they needed on Alzheimer's and dementia. And we noticed that they weren't speaking to anybody with dementia. Who is the expert in the field, but somebody living with it. So we contacted them and a group of us actually went and spoke at the Senate. And out of that came our Canadian dementia strategy, which is going strong. And 
you know, making some great strides, great funding. Um, if I get a chance to speak anywhere, uh, I go and I speak. And I try and teach that the disease, you know, although it may be very devastating diagnosis, it's not devastating. If given the right situations, you can go on and you can live well with dementia. The other thing that I'm really big on is human rights for people living with dementia, because we all have human rights. And when our human rights are taken away from us, just because we have a diagnosis, that's appalling. That should not be happening. And I think, you know, those are the things I stand up for. I stand up for people living with dementia. We also have started a peer-to-peer support group for people living with dementia in the Hamilton Haldeman area. And um, I run the support group for people living with dementia because I think it's so important for them to know. And I really go in and I speak to all the first steps classes um, that they have because it's so important for others to realize that this isn't as devastating as we all think it is because we've been programmed to think that way. So when I hear you guys use words like suffering, you know, to be honest, we're not suffering. It's the care partners perception that we're suffering because we're not living the way we did, but we're still viable. We're still like challenge us, make us do things because that keeps your mind active. And that's why I do so much because I want to keep my mind active. I want to stay engaged as long as possible. And I think that is truly possible because I will tell you, I'm going to admit this now. I've had Alzheimer's for 15 years now. And that's, that's quite something. <laughs> and, and certainly, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, apart from the fact you've, you've told us that you have Alzheimer's, I mean, I would not remotely know that uh, as someone who's known sort of multiple people with, with dementia and Alzheimer's. Well, I'll say part of the reason is I call my journey my roller coaster of dementia because you have really good days, you have really bad days, and then there's days you go right off the rails. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it's in training my family that has helped a lot. So even my youngest granddaughter, who's seven, knows when I'm having a bad day, knows how to help me through it. And sometimes I suffer with something called word salad. So my words will become very jumbled and mixed up and I'll say things backwards. And they just look at me and go, nanny, you're doing that word thing again. You you know, so training everybody around me that I'm still me. I'm still here. I still have all my education. I still have all my life experience. I'm still me. I may have trouble accessing the old me. But the new me can still do things. Some something I, I've been aware of with, I, I guess, often people your familiarity and awareness and involvement in health in the health sector, I guess, led you to recognise very early what was happening. As most people, I certainly know with my own family that there's a good deal of denial that goes on, uh, if not with the person who who has the symptoms than with the family. I know, I particularly with my grandmother, we did that. 
Um, and so you leave it and leave it and leave it, and then it's too late. So the person who, who, who never gets a diagnosis because then you said, well, they can't remember it now or, you know, so it's almost like they never know. And I'm thinking it, that must be something you come across a lot. Is that like a sort of stake? Sorry, Mary, I should bring you in too, but Phyllis, please go ahead. It is because, you know, did I want to hide it? Yes, I did want to hide it in the beginning, but I also wanted to know what was going on because working as a nurse in an ICU, I didn't want to make a mistake, <laughs> right? So I really wanted, I had to find out. And then, you know, it's a disease where you're hidden, you're locked away. Nobody, because not only are you embarrassed, but your family's embarrassed of what you, the problems you are now having. And it, you know, I remember when my grandmother was diagnosed, she was brought home. And she sat in her rocking chair till the day she died. And it was a disease that was never talked about. And I wanted to change it, that we need to talk about this disease. We need to educate more people about this disease because the more people feel comfortable with it, the easier it's going to become on society. Um, And early diagnosis is, for me, the key. Because you're still in an early stage. You can still make decisions for yourself. You can implement a plan. You can do so many things early on to help you live through this process. On, on that note, I, I'm thinking, why don't we bring in Mary from the uh, Alzheimer's Society uh, of Canada just to touch on that that, that aspect of education. Because, yeah, Phyllis, you, you unpacked a lot for, for me, and I'm, I'm just processing <laughs> it in my head here, which is good. But Mary, why don't you come in and uh, into the conversation now and tell us a little bit about what the ALS does and maybe some of the advocacy that your organization does to to shine a light on this on this disease. Thank you, Joel. I'm actually with the local society, the Alzheimer's Society that covers Brant, Haldeman, Norfolk, Hamilton, Halton, and we have a team in Niagara. So we're a local society that really focuses on providing pro education and supports to people living with dementia and their care partners. You know, 15% of individuals living with dementia are younger than 65, and they often go undiagnosed because people think it's an older person's disease. So we've got to break a lot of the myths about this disease. I laugh because the story of, of denial that you talked about, well, my own father, who was a physician, a professor of medicine, we were visiting and he started saying things. We were with him in Florida for a week, my husband and I, and he said, I read a black light. And then we heard him giving his credit card out on the phone to telemarketers. And I came home and I got on the phone and I called all my siblings and said, I think dad's in the early stage of dementia. And my brother, who's a physician, said, oh, Mary, you're just seeing things because you work in that field. Well, eventually they believed me and we ended up having to go to a neurologist to get him diagnosed. And because he was a very intelligent person, he was still scoring well on a lot of the cognitive tests. But when they delved deeper, they realized that, the, you know, he wasn't scoring as well as they had anticipated someone who was a professor of medicine. Anyway, early diagnosis is important and getting to someplace like a local Alzheimer's Society to learn about the disease, both for the person, 
living with dementia as well as his or her care partner. It can really help understand that it's not the person who's causing some of these new behaviors, but it's the disease and learning how to react to some of the ways that people respond in new ways is really, really important. So at the Alzheimer's Society, we offer education throughout the course of the disease about the early stages, the middle stages, and the later stages. Because what people don't realize is that dementia is a fatal disease. And it, although many people end up dying of something else, pneumonia or COVID, their COVID that impacted so many people who are in long-term care, but um, it will eventually kill you. So, and so teaching people about what happens at the end stage is really important because families aren't always aware. There's a strong emotional impact of this disease. And Phyllis talked about the stigma. I mean, one of the things we hear from people and I've heard repeatedly, it's the rupture of our social relationships that is the most difficult thing about this disease. So if we can teach our society how to be more supportive, inclusive of people living with dementia and their care partners, they will be less isolated and more supported. You know, we talk about it takes a village to raise a child. Well, I think it takes a village to support a family going through dementia. And we have to reach out. I remember in the last years of my father's life, he had a, a group of buddies that he used to golf with every Wednesday. And in the final years, they'd come and pick him up and take him golfing and they'd pay for his golf because he could no longer handle money. And he'd hit 10 shots, you know, and then they'd say, hey, Alec, what was your score? And he'd say, oh, five. And they say, fine. You know, they just moved with it. They understand, stood that it was the disease and he was their friend and he was still there and they wanted to be with him. What a beautiful story that is. Actually, Jill, um, do you want to do you want to come in as a as a former caregiver to uh, to somebody with with uh, dementia? With uh, and just so our listeners do remember, Jill has been on the podcast before to actually talk about back when uh, uh, in the height of the pandemic to talk about uh, the long term care home situation in the in the province. Jill, Jill, why don't you come in and give us a perspective as from the caregiver uh, side of the side of the equation? I just remember one incident so clearly, and this talks about stigma. Um, my mom was managing on her own in her apartment after my dad passed away. And we knew at that time she had dementia um, and we were doing what we could to support her. And I came over to her apartment in Bronte and the landlord met me at the door and she said, you're Joan's daughter, aren't you? And I said, yes. She said, come here for a minute. And she showed me loaves of bread that she had kept in a freezer. And she said, this is your mother feeding the birds again. You've got to stop her from doing this. And she literally screamed at me in the hallway of the apartment building. And I was so dumbstruck. And I didn't know what to say, which is unusual for me. And... I've thought about her for so long, this this woman and her anger um, and no compassion, no understanding. And, you know, my mom has always loved animals, always loved birds and, and feeding them. Yes, she was starting to throw loaves of bread and 
And obviously we had a, an issue there, but it was this woman's lack of compassion, her anger directed at me as a caregiver. And all I wanted at that moment in time was a hug. Uh, Phyllis, can I just ask you a quick question? You were talking about being in the ICU and you were talking about some of the things I guess didn't feel right for you. Something wasn't right or wasn't connecting for you. What were those first sort of signs for you that, geez, something doesn't seem right for me? So for me, it wasn't so much forgetting things. For me, it was more my language skills. I w- was not, you know, I was having difficulty doing my charting. And that's a big part of my job is charting. And I was starting to see problems with my language skills, um, my math calculations. Again, major part in nursing, especially in an ICU because you're always mi- mixing drugs. So when I started to have problems with my higher executive functioning, um, I thought something's not right. And then it took quite a while to get a firm diagnosis because as you can see, I'm very literate, but my Alzheimer's shows up in my language skills. I, I still have a real difficult time writing stuff out because the disconnect between my brain and the physical piece of paper I'm writing on is hard so when I have to write a speech or when I have to um you know I sit on a lot of committees when I'm doing that type of work and I've got paperwork to do I actually use the computer now and use voice recognition software in order to do that so living with my dementia I'm I'm having to learn new ways to do things or different ways to do things um if I'm doing something like laundry and it's not on the same floor I'm on. My laundry is like most people in the basement. I can go down and put laundry in and forget about it, but I've devised a, and it works for me. I take a, I have a stack of sticky notes on top of my washer and dryer and I write down the time and then I come up and put it on the microwave and set the microwave timer for 30 minutes. So then I get busy doing things, forget about the laundry, the microwave beep. So it was more my executive functioning that was going um, and my organizational skills. I was starting to have some real difficulty organizing myself um, and my focus. I could not focus on things like, and if I got interrupted, I'd have to start right at the beginning again. I couldn't go back. You know how we we all get interrupted doing things and we can stop for a minute and then go back and resume where we were. Well, I wasn't able to do that anymore. So it it was those types of things. Um, or, you know, I can remember being at my brother-in-law's out west and I hadn't seen him in a while and I went in the kitchen to get a fork and he asked me, oh, did, did you need something? And I held up a knife and said oh I just came in for a fork and it was a knife in my hand and he just kind of looked at me like you're losing it but you know what that's the way it is but I'm also a firm believer that the more we stay engaged and the more we do it helps to develop new neuro pathways and I think that helps in the early stages 
of Alzheimer's and dementia that you can still do these. Thank you. Thank you for that. So as someone who, who's, my mother had Alzheimer's, my grandmother had dementia, which was possibly Alzheimer's. My father had dementia that wasn't Alzheimer's, but was was similar in many, many ways. I live in fear of the hereditary aspect of Alzheimer's. What, do, I mean, I'm sure that you run into people like, like this all the time who are like, okay, this could be in my future. What do, what, let's touch you Mary first. What, what do you say to, to people like that? Um, you know, what, what, what should I be doing at my age? Someone who is already extremely absent-minded, uh, whose executive function is is uh, notoriously poor. <laughs> uh, what, uh, what do you say to people like me? Well, first of all, you're not alone. There are many of us out there who are in the same situation, who have family members who had dementia. Um, certainly, the most promising research we have going right now are ways to reduce our risk of developing dementia. The most important thing we all can be doing is exercise. So we know that things that are good for our heart are also good for our brain. So cardiovascular messaging, so if we can keep our blood pressure down, if we eat a healthy diet, if we don't smoke, if we don't overindulge in alcohol, and most importantly, if we do regular exercise, we can reduce our risk of developing dementia. That doesn't mean you won't develop dementia, but perhaps you develop it five or 10 years later. So our Alzheimer's Society is one of the few in the province that offers exercise programs to older adults. And our whole rationale is that if we can keep older adults fit, and exercising, we will help reduce the incidence of dementia in our communities or delay the onset of dementia for some people. So that's, we also run, offer um, education programs for people on brain health. So if you're interested in learning about that, go to the Alzheimer's Society website and you can sign up for a class on things you can do to keep your brain healthy. There are other things like learning a new language, taking up a musical instrument, anything that's going to challenge our brain. But the researchers will say exercise is perhaps the most important thing we can all be doing. And I don't know about you, Roland, but I don't exercise enough. No, I don't. No, I don't. Uh, yeah, forcing myself to do things that I don't really want to do is, is, uh, is, uh, is a fun challenge for me. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, and, and I actually, because I've kind of lived my whole life with with with. For, for many periods of my life with, with someone with Alzheimer's in it, um, I assumed that I knew everything. And I realized recently that I don't because I haven't looked at any research about it for donkey's years and since the, since the 80s, really, when things were very, very different. Um, and there's all kinds, like you say, there's all kinds of things about diet. Um, I, I think there's there's a lot of research about sugar currently, isn't there? Which um, is another failing of mine. <laughs> uh, uh, sort of association between between, between sugar and, and some forms of Alzheimer's and um, diabetes uh, increases your risk. Right. Yeah. Head injury uh, increases your risk. So uh, these are all really useful things to know. And I, I think uh, the, the main lesson I'm taking right now is, is from Phyllis in the kind of early diagnosis that that could change everything. And that I imagine, you know, um, well, I, I can I can speak to experience of someone uh, who persuading a parent to go to the doctor because of memory problems 
that they su- suspected might be the early stages of Alzheimer's and the, and, the, and the GP saying, well, you know, everybody gets a bit forgetful as they get older. Whereas <laughs> I know, I, I, th- I feel like I know the difference between that kind of old age forgetfulness and the dementia forgetfulness, having seen it over the years. Uh, Phyllis, does that resonate with you as well? Because I was so young when I started to see symptoms and when I first went to the doctor, it was like, it's got to be something else. So, you know, I think we spent a year to two years going through the whole, is it menopause? Is it anything else medical? Is it depression? Like they all thought I was depressed. Well, I was the least depressed person. I know, like nothing ever gets me down. So, you know, we ran through that whole gamut. So I think the key message here would be, if you're questioning it, go and get checked. Because Roland, I'm going to tell you something. I have run international support groups for people living with dementia through Dementia Alliance International. And I've seen people as young as 32 years old with a diagnosis of dementia. So, you know, we say it's an old person's disease. Well, no, we're seeing it younger and younger. And the earlier you can get in, get your diagnosis, the better you can you make out, right? You make lifestyle changes. You, Our families, they want to care for us, our care partners. My husband, you know, he was my biggest supporter, but he wanted to do everything for me. He wanted to take over absolutely everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my kids, the same thing. And I can remember the one day my daughter saying something and I looked at her and I said, and who died and made you my boss? Because that's not happening. You know, until I'm in the latent stages, I'm making my decisions. I'm saying what happens, right? So I think it's those types of things. If I need your help, I will request it. Yeah. yeah. So Roland, you talked about um, your friend and the family physician. I think, unfortunately, we hear that story a lot because in fairness to our family docs who are perhaps older, they didn't get any training on dementia in medical school. We still don't have enough training of healthcare providers in every sector, long-term care, hospital, physicians on dementia. And it is a huge issue that is growing as our population ages. That's our biggest Mm -hmm. risk factor. So we need to be advocating for more. um, And certainly the Alzheimer's Society is doing this more inclusion of dementia education in all of the training programs of all healthcare, not just healthcare, but broader um, social service providers as well. We have can some I, cool, you know, go ahead. Can Sorry, I just go. jump in here? Um, my mom had sundowners. Mm-hmm. Mom, uh, she suffered, I don't like to use that word now after listening to Phyllis, but uh, she had sundowners and she as soon as the it would get darker and if we didn't have a light on in the room for her um she she really would have some serious issues and i remember one night uh she was in uh assisted living and they weren't really prepared for for her and her condition when when the sun went down literally and she phoned me 36 times one night and I could never not answer the phone. And my mom, even though she forgot so many things, she never forgot telephone numbers. And even though I was retired 
from work for several years, she was still phoning the Burlington Post um, and leaving all kinds of messages for me. Uh, she usually was very angry um, and would say some pretty horrible things and get very, very agitated that nothing that I could say to her could soothe her. And one, one of those episodes took place at a, an area hospital that she was in and the young nurse who was with my mom hadn't seen anything like it and you know mom would talk about you know people stealing from her and you know paranoia was was huge uh, with my mom and she had a heart attack because she was so agitated and the next day we met with the doctor and and they said you know do you do you want to file a complaint <laughs> and uh, i said no none of us the family did because to see sundowners or to be part of that experience um really people need to be educated about it i'm not exactly sure what the um the physiological things that happen with people. But to see it with my mom was extremely upsetting uh, for me and something I will never forget. Um, and indeed, one day, um, it happened Christmas. It was actually a Christmas day, and she really started to slip as it was getting darker. I recorded um, our conversation together because I thought if ever I needed therapy or something was happening, I was going to show them this because it is extremely, it can be extremely alarming to a family member or a caregiver when you see someone you love completely, completely different. My mom could switch personalities um, and that you were never too sure who you were going to get. And uh, if I said I was frightened on some days, um, that would be an understatement. So maybe uh, Mary could explain what sundowners is a little bit better. I just know the effects of it and the effect that it had on me and my mom. Well, so you Mary, did a wonderful, you did a wonderful job. I think what you raised though is this huge need for more supports for care partners. You know, most of the care of people living with dementia in this province is being delivered by care partners, and there are very little supports. I mean, we're spending billions of dollars to build new long-term care home beds, which I think, you know, we need them, but it's seven years down the road. If we took that money and invested it in community supports, so we had more respite supports or activity supports going into the home and supporting not only the person with dementia, but also the care partner who is at risk for their own health issues due to the stress of supporting someone living with dementia. Um, I, I just, I wanted to jump in uh, into the conversation because I, I'll, I'll be truthful and, and, and open here. I, I don't have anyone in my, in my life or my circle that has Alzheimer's or dementia. Not um, yet. Not yet. I don't have a family history of it. So who knows what's going to happen, but that's, I, I am, I am coming here as a bit of quote unquote, an outsider. Um, and I'm very, I'm very appreciative of the conversation that we're having here today. Um, but there's something that kind of clicked in my head as, as I'm hearing the three of you talk. And I, it was something that Phyllis, you touched upon at the start. And that was the bit of uh, the stigma of dementia and Alzheimer's. And 
there seem I think I think the the social stigma of Alzheimer's and dementia is because it's a it's a mirror for ourselves. We see our family, our loved ones, uh, this, and we see we see them changing. They're no longer the mom or the dad that we grew up with or that we expected them to be. They're they they have trouble maybe remembering us or recalling those those loved memories that we that made us who we are, and it it, it it's it's difficult for families and caregivers to to deal with this and it does feel isolating um and i think that's the that's the stigma and the fear of it is that we're we don't want to talk about the things that scare us and we're scared that we see a a family member doing that and what if that becomes me what if i lose what makes me me and then i wanted to get and that's brought me back to what you just said mary about the the social networking that we need the 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 idea that it takes the village to look after these people and it's kind of an old-fashioned concept right like back in back in back in the day when the elderly were infirm you just didn't cast them out to out in the wilderness and fend for themselves it was no the 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 whole community came together okay we're gonna look after this person we're you know feed them clothe them just look after them until until they pass away we seem to have kind of gotten away from that and i think and you know, we, we talk about the need of of social programs and long. We talk about the long term care homes. That's what we all talk about now because of COVID. But what you brought up about social programs to have to give caregivers the supports they need to to look after their loved ones properly. There's not really a question here, but it's more just you know, it's our connection there between like the social stigma and the fear that we have of this, and our lack of willingness to go and embrace this. Say, you know what? We got to do this. We got to. We got to put money. We got to give. We got to give education. We got to give resources. We got to give social workers or or nurses or healthcare workers or whomever we need mental care, mental health professionals, whomever is best equipped to handle this and give the caregivers the tools they need, which will cost money. Is that is am I am I on the right track here? Is this or am I just kind of grasping at straw at straws? <laughs> I, I, Phyllis, oh. Phyllis, I saw, I saw, I saw you're, you're nodding. So I'm going to, I think you're going to agree with me. So I'm going to give it to you first. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's highly important that we revamp how people look at dementia. And, you know, many years ago we had the Ontario dementia strategy, but we all know that during um, election time, Governments change, and with every government change comes a change in what they support. So our Ontario Dementia Strategy went out the door, and when we had one, we were working on better education programs We were for people living with dementia, for the care partners, for the nurses, for the doctors, for everybody. And, you know, it, I was sad to see that that went out the door. We are still getting some funding to do it. But I think the big thing is we all need to, you know, I hate to use the word, we need to all stand together and push the government to help support and to do these things and to educate the government because, you know what, Joel, just like you, maybe they've never had anybody with dementia. Maybe they don't understand it. You know, I remember when I was in nursing school, I got half an hour training on Alzheimer's. My granddaughter's in medical school right now. They had an hour's training. You know, I have to hand it to Mary Burnett from the Alzheimer's Society here in Hamilton. They're they're a very progressive Alzheimer's society. And they're doing some phenomenal work. 
to help educate everybody, not just people living with dementia. Most recently, they put together a panel of people living with dementia to understand what we want and what we would have appreciated from the physicians or the gerontologists on what we wanted to know as soon as we got diagnosed, what would have helped us. And out of that, we came a guide. So they have just sent out to all gerontologists recently this brand new guide put together by people living with dementia to the gerontologists as when you give us our diagnosis, this is the information we need. This is what will help us initially. Because a lot of times, you know, they give you the diagnosis and they say, we'll see you in six months. Well, where do you go? What do you do? You don't, you know, and if you don't have somebody to tell you, if you don't have the knowledge, most people come home and they flounder. Um, the big thing I want to touch on is like, Jill, I'm one of those that wake up at night. You know, my big fear is I'm going to wander out at night. So it was all the pre-planning we did. So we put in an alarm system with this, that if my front door opens, it alarms so that my husband will be alerted. So it's all in a lot of the stuff we've done to help keep me safe. It's all in the Mm pre-planning of things. Um, But I think we all need to stay on the governments to really support. There's a lot of, you know, stuff coming out of the World Health and the United Nations and mandates that we have to be dementia friendly in so many years or understand dementia. Isn't it by 2025, Mary, or 2050? Do you remember? The what? Uh, the mandate from the World Health Organization for being um, dementia inclusive. Mm. Sorry, I, I don't know, 20... Celeste. I should know. I know. I think it's 2025. The only reason I'm up on this stuff is because I watch everything. I read everything. Um, You know, people think that we can't do things and we can. I still participate in research. That's one of my big things. Um, And I think a lot of the times it's getting the information out to the public, getting people to be aware. Go ahead, Mary. Oh, well, I was going to say, you know, COVID-19, the pandemic we've been living through, and, and Jill will be able to speak personally about this, has really exposed not new, but existing problems mm-hmm. in both our hospital system and our long-term care system. We don't have enough staff. We don't have enough people who are trained in dementia, and we don't have enough community support so people don't end up in hospital. Right now, across our province, almost 50% of the people who are deemed alternate level of care or no longer acutely ill and in the hospital, you know, sometimes referred to not very nicely as bed blockers, are waiting for long-term care, have some form of dementia. And you know, if we could have provided more supports to those individuals in the community, they may not have ended up in the hospital. We have a cool project in Brantford where we have staff who are working alongside hospital 
um, staff in the emergency department trying to meet people who show up, often because the care partner's just so tired and, and can't do it anymore. And they're taking their family member with dementia to the emergency department because they don't know what to do anymore. And unfortunately, in the past, many of these people have been admitted and they were not acutely ill. So we're trying to meet those families and get them connected with community supports. But we need a lot more community supports to address the growing number of people affected by dementia in our province. I think that's highly important because you gotta look at our care partners. All our care partners are older adults. They too have their own health issues. And having to take care of somebody living with dementia puts a further burden on them. So what's going to happen to their health issues? They're going to escalate. What happens when, you know, as just as an example, my husband had to have hip replacement surgery, had to go in hospital. Now you see me and you think, oh, she's fine. She can be on her own, but I don't eat. If he's not here to feed me, I do not eat because it's not something in my mind that is important. It's not something that I think about. So, you know, it's those types of things. And so he goes into hospital to have his hip replaced. And what's he doing? He's laying in that hospital bed worrying, is she eating? Is she doing this? You know, um, so we need to also help care for those care partners a lot better than we are. And again, I'm just going to bring Jill in with her experience there and long-term care, but also I'm going to selfishly share my own experience, which was the, my, of my mother um, caring for her mother uh, and really that being a turning point in her life in some ways and not in a good way because the pressure of being a full-time carer, our grandmother lived, my grandmother lived with us for the last couple of years of her life and was, we just weren't, uh, properly prepared we didn't we weren't good carers uh, ultimately we were very bad carers for my grandmother not because just because we weren't we didn't train we didn't the house wasn't set up for it um we had stairs i mean uh and the the, the pressure or, or i mean i was doing my sort of uni uh, just before going to university i was doing my o levels and a levels which are like the uk kind of exams um, you know, and my grandmother would get up in the middle of the night and, and greatly distressed. And I'm going, I need to sleep because I've got an exam tomorrow. You know, it was really uh, incredible pressure. And uh, uh, like many British people, a long family of, of, uh, uh, of alcohol and things like that and smoking and goodness knows what, lots of healthy things. Uh, that's the time in my in my life in my mother's life where alcohol started to be a bit of a challenge because that was her way of dealing with the pressure um so yeah your point is very well taken and uh, uh, you can't underestimate the the how tough dealing with someone who's certainly in mid to late stage alzheimer's uh, uh can be if you're if you're not a professional who's got the training to deal with that kind of thing now jill i, I wanted to bring and actually i just want to share with people Kind of the extraordinary this is kind of how you and i got speaking a while ago was because you you were talking on twitter about your mother and and your mother and my mother grew up within a couple of miles of each other in london during the second world war which was just like well that's a coincidence <laughs> and a half <laughs> so yes. maybe just talk about that a bit but also i i want to i think like many people you had all kinds of fun um finding the right care for your mother when it got to that stage where she needed it 
I, I, you know, too. listening to everybody, and, and I still have this overwhelming sense of guilt that I was not able to care for my mom at home. Um, she had multiple health issues in addition to um, uh, dementia because she was never officially diagnosed with Alzheimer's, but they weren't sure what her dementia was. But I wasn't able to care for her. My sister couldn't. My brother couldn't. But uh, because she did, she had multiple cancers. Um, she was a very strong lady born out of London, as uh, as you mentioned, your mom was too. And mom, bless her, she lived to, to 93. Um, and she, as I said, had multiple health issues. I have my own health issues. And when I hear people saying, oh, you know, they warehoused into long-term care or, you know, you somehow the caregiver was, oh, why would you put your mom into long-term care? There's this overwhelming sense of like, what did I do? But I knew in my heart, I couldn't, I couldn't care for her at all. I, they had such a difficult time even at the hospital. Um, and then she was in uh, assisted living, which really she should have been in long-term care near the end there because she was just visiting the hospital for so many reasons. Uh, we did all of our <clears throat> due diligence. We looked at five uh, long-term care homes in Burlington. Um, but of course, you know, there's years and years of waiting. Um, and she was eventually placed in a little long-term care home out of necessity because she had been in the hospital emergency department four times over a weekend. Um, she went to a little long-term care home in Grimsby and they were brilliant. Okay, the home wasn't much to look at. Oh, but the staff were wonderful. And uh, I'm ever so grateful for that. They connected me during the... Uh, first lockdown we we did video messages we tried to facetime though mom wasn't good at that but i'm ever so grateful to this ltc for the care they gave mom but i still carry that feeling of guilt that i should have had her at home or i didn't do enough or and it's, it can be heartbreaking when you read the stories in the paper saying, well, my mom's 90. She goes out, walks the dog and she lives at home. And, you know, why would you put her in long term care? But everybody is different. And that's what maybe I want to stress. Everybody's um, physical conditions are different as well as as mental. And um, it's an incredibly um, difficult disease and one that needs compassion, understanding, and kindness from from all of us in so many ways. I think that's so, Jill, thank you for saying that. And I hope my comments didn't in any way make you feel guilty. No, because, no, you, no, no, because no. I know that long-term care is a very important support for many, many people, particularly in the later stages. My whole piece is that we've got to have increased staffing and more education for our long-term care home providers. I just, I just want to say that we did actually try to set up care um, and we did it that time. It was CCAC. I'm not sure what they call it. Uh, Lynn. Um, they were coming in four times a day to make sure she was taking her pills, make sure, you know, that she was eating and 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 um, was actually bathing. And, and but she wouldn't let them in. She barricaded herself in and 
she wouldn't let my sister and I in at one point because they were, you know, they were coming in. They were intrusive was my mom's go-to word. They were intrusive. They can't come in. And um, we, if I say we tried everything, we tried everything. And for a decade, it was uh, heart-wrenching for everyone. Yeah. Uh, and and Jill, I can understand that because there's days when I'm having a bad day and I'm unable to express myself and my husband or daughter will come in and it may not be anything they say. It may just be their body language. And I internalize and get right. very angry. So I can see how it's so hard on the caregivers. I think with me, the biggest thing I did once I got diagnosed was we made plans right in the very beginning as to what care was going to happen. You know, where I, because I said, I'm not going to be a burden on my husband or my children because nowadays all kids in our two income families, they all work and my kids all work in healthcare. So, you know, I can't, so I've chosen nursing homes that they can put me in. So it was all in the pre-planning. And I think once I got all that pre-planning done, I was able to move ahead and move on. But I had to get that done in the back of my head first before I can move on. That and, you know, so I feel for you, Jill. I totally do. Because I know that what I put my husband through <laughs> Yeah, but you're laughing. You're laughing. <laughs> my mom and my mom and dad absolutely refused to discuss uh, anything to do with death, dying. Um, my dad covered my mom's dementia very well yeah. for quite a while um, until he couldn't. But they wouldn't talk about it. And you're not going to lock me away in one of those homes. That was the message. And and you sound like such an incredible woman. Uh, such a wonderful person um, and I admire you so much and I I, I wish that uh, I would I wonder if I would be so strong um, in your position but, but you're absolutely brilliant I just I just want to jump in because I, I think we're coming up on the time limit um, but yeah I mean we were, we were saying beforehand that this we could be talking about this for the entire Ever. week I think <laughs> um, but I, I I want to maybe summarize the theme that I'm hearing is that we need a little bit more love, a little bit more compassion in our just and preparedness, just, I guess, preparedness and preparedness, and just just a little bit more patience and understanding, and a little bit a little bit more compassion towards uh, each other. I think can go a long long way. So, Joel, I'm going to agree with you there, and I will tell you something. I do a lot of work trying in Hamilton. And we're working on a project now and we had to come up with a logo and my logo was all about love. Like you just said, and it's every person in the world needs love L O V E, but people living with Alzheimer's need love L U V E. They need listening. They need understanding. They need validation and they need empowerment. So it's, you know, when I heard you say the word love that just popped in my head. That's that great, is amazing. That's wonderful. A great, a great uh, note on which to end it. I'm just taking the words right out of Joel's mouth there. <laughs> I know what he was about to say, and I'm jumping in and saying it. Thank you so much, all of you. I could go on with this conversation for the rest of the day, but 
maybe we'll come back next year and, and, and do this again for Alzheimer's Awareness Month. Thank you all so much for, for all your insight. And I hope for people listening that it, anybody who's living with Alzheimer's themselves, family members with Alzheimer's, I hope it uh, provides some really useful information that there is so much to be hopeful about. Uh, and uh, if you do all those uh, things that Phyllis and Mary and, and Jill have been talking about today. So thank you so much. That's it for this episode of the 905er. Thank you for listening. As always, you can send us your feedback, thoughts, and concerns, or ideas for future episodes to our email, info at 905er.ca. We'd love to hear from you. You can help us keep the 905er going by financially supporting us through Patreon as well as PayPal. Visit us at 905er.ca and click on the support tab. As well, links are in the show notes for your convenience. Lastly, you can find us on social media. Search for the underscore 905er on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So long for now. See you next time. And I'm Mr. Grizzly. If you love politics or hate politics, then have we we the perfect perfect podcast for you. The True North Eager Beaver. Incisive political commentary. We keep you up to date and give you the political and media literacy you seek. To help you cut through the bovine fecal matter. Facts first. Sound analysis. Sometimes I growl. Sometimes I sass. We impart civics and build community. And we share some laughs along the way. Being informed and engaged has never been more fabulous. Or sexy. Catch us on the Dean Blundell Blundell Network Network. or on our YouTube channel or wherever you get your podcasts because democracy democracy is something you you do. do.